Hello, and thank you for joining us today for Frost & Sullivan's latest webinar from our Transformational Health Practice. Today's event is titled 2019 Life Science Predictions, Decoding Five Incredible Growth Opportunities. My name is Anna, and I oversee Frost & Sullivan's Growth, Innovation, and Leadership Briefings. Our presenters today are Nina Nayak, Global Vice President, Fred Mao, Executive Director, Umesh Lau, Program Manager, Barbara Gilmore, Senior Consultant, and Kusha Bujan, Industry Analyst. With that, I would now like to hand the presentation over to Nidin. Thank you, Anna. Uh, greetings, everyone, and welcome to Frost & Sullivan's uh, 2019 Life Sciences Prediction Briefing. The industry is off to an amazing start uh, with the relentless move towards value-based care and outcome-based reimbursement. The challenge now is really assimilating uh, some of the necessary infrastructure and educating patients, providers, payers uh, to form those re relationships with uh, the regulatory agencies. So uh, what we really foresee the industry is to really turn the corner uh, in 2019. So here are some of the key trends uh, which we see, which each uh, and every lifetime company today has to deal with and has to has the intensity to grow and turn the corner in 2019. So essentially there are four aspects to this. Let's begin with uh, scalable growth strategies. Most companies enhanced their solution portfolio in 2018, growing the top line between really a, a low of 2% to a high of 20%. So, so what we saw was really diverse uh, growth across uh, different companies. Uh, while Pfizer, Amgen, uh, Gilead struggle to grow over low single digits, companies like Janssen, Thermo Fisher, and Illumina have experienced higher double-digit growth rates. And bulk of these growth drivers remain outside of the U.S., particularly in Asia-Pacific and the emerging European markets. Moving on to M&A, we expect the pace of acquisitions and alliances to continue at the current or higher levels as the industry repositions for this reimbursement shift. A majority of acquisitions, north of 80%, continue to be towards capacity expansion for new assets and geographies. So there is a lot of activity and evidence that the growth and in the acquisition of digital solution targets will take place, especially as the precision healthcare landscape turns towards the maturity curve. Another differentiation is on about uh, operational excellence. Every organization today needs to have a strategy to compete uh, in an increasingly digital world. And this can be done by adoption of either best-in-class technology or companies building their own proprietary uh, capability. So we expect companies to continue investment heavily in enterprise-wide digital platforms to speed up product development, customer experience, and actually also leverage uh, artificial intelligence, uh, hybrid cloud to simplify and automate processes. Now turning into data monetization, uh, this we believe will be the new inflection point as more and more companies have access to humongous amount of data, especially in the diagnostic industry where we see consumers almost to the tune of five 
and a half million and above now actually been tested wide for different types of genetic testing. So thanks to these core positions, we believe pharma, life science, diagnostics companies are now very well positioned for what we expect 2019 to become a year of sustained top line growth. I'll now talk briefly about how the different regions and the companies in those regions are innovating to show growth in 2019. Let's start with uh, the Americas. There has been a lot of effort by the government and also the private companies to increase patient access. And this is not just for generics but also the new and expensive biologics. So the effort on patient reported outcomes and companies actually competing to provide outcome-based contracts uh, will just increase. And this will require partnerships on outsourcing as well as digital transformation to drive new value creation. So as we have seen, uh, companies really restructuring and building focused portfolios on specialty therapies. For example, Novartis, Pfizer, Amgen have created specialty oncology portfolios and the thrust is essentially on outcome-based contracts. Moving on to Europe, we see the complexity of new IVD regulations and also the emphasis on GDPR to bring in more meaningful partnerships, especially on outsourcing and the emphasis on outlicensing deals. Germany in particular will actually be pretty impressive in terms of all the activities which has been a streamline in those markets. Germany continues to be one of uh, Europe's leading license cluster and primary growth comes from established mid-sized companies and also some of the global players like Merck and Roche Diagnostics. Roche in particular had had a phenomenal year with almost uh, 10 plus launches in the diagnostic sector including proliferation of their primary platform which is Cobas. Uh, across different types of assays and also the digital pathology uh, platforms. Moving on to UK, and we are all watching the discussions and the impact on Brexit, and uh, my colleague Unmesh will talk in detail about that. But in short, there is focus uh, both by the government and the company to increase research and development, and also putting a playbook of what that will mean in the post-Brexit phase. Australia and New Zealand especially had an interesting 2019. Specifically in Australia, there was efforts to improve access to skilled labor and given the changes in immigration of how that will impact access to talent with the small and the mid-sized company. So we see this year uh, the pronounced effect of R&D tax as well as measures looking at boosting the one-stop shop for clinical trials to give a, a pretty optimistic outlook. In the Middle East, there has been a lot of focus and increased public-private partnership within the generics market. A lot of companies have actually built manufacturing plants in the top GCC countries, especially UAE and Saudi Arabia, and we expect this to continue. So moving on to Asia-Pacific, uh, let's start with India. With the Pharma Vision 2020, the government of India really aims to make India a global player in end-to-end -end manufacturing. 
the innovative india had three core objectives product discovery translational research and also boosting early stage manufacturing but it's interesting to note that the indian industry has now tipped over from being an export led model to a domestic consumption model and although exports which have grown steadily over the years stringent fda as well as efif policies and competition from emerging markets like brazil and russia have pushed indian companies to adopt new growth strategies and business models china continues to be one of the fastest growing markets the pharmaceutical industry witnessed phenomenal growth companies like jiangsu sino and csps pharmaceuticals have strongly leveraged the government's made in china 2025 plan to steam ahead but an interesting trajectory we see is in the investment of artificial intelligence specifically pushed by some of the private equity companies like softbank and tencent and we believe that ai will essentially help some of the local companies to create a second generation of genomic services in asean affordable care remains a central challenge and the regional governments have put two specific points to tackle this so one is incentivizing local r&d and manufacturing to serve and create products for the aging population we will see this fast tracking growth in countries like indonesia and vietnam at the same time governments remain committed to achieve universal health care in 2019 and this will push the demand for generics as well as point of care testing diagnostic services and finally japan uh we expect japan to continue leadership in regenerative medicine bigger companies especially the top 3 companies like takeda astellas and fuji film have put collaborative efforts to actually uh, build new solutions in the field of cell therapy at the same time companies such as hitachi along with their subsidiaries such as pst pct have made significant investment in developing contract manufacturing services in this industry so with this i would like now to uh, open up and invite uh, my colleagues to do a round up for the us europe and chinese market i would like to invite uh, barbara gilmore uh, to give her views on the US market. Thank you. Barbara, Nitin. please. Thank you, Nitin. Now we will discuss what some of the opportunities are in the US in 2019. And I'll start with drug pricing. Two laws were signed by President Trump in October of 2018, which aimed to reduce the 2019 patient spend on prescription drugs. These new laws remove the gag order which was once on pharmacists that prevented them from discussing cheaper options with patients. Now, pharmacists will be able to tell a patient when paying out of pocket will be cheaper than going with their own insurance copay. Transparency will help patients and policymakers make more informed decisions relating to prescription drug spend. It's hard to come up with reasonable solutions if we're in the dark. Legislation is also now being crafted in the United States with regard to the facilitation of reference drug pricing. If this passes, this legislation will peg US drug prices against Canada, Britain, France, Germany, and Japan. Reference drug pricing is already a model in place in those countries. 
In 2018, in the U.S., most commercial drug plans actually saw spending increase only increase 1.5% per person compared with a 3.8% increase in 2017. So things are dropping overall. In 2019, we predict there will be lower price trends for drugs in the pain and inflammation area, high cholesterol area, and neurological area as more generics flood the market in those therapeutic areas. By the same token, in 2019, we predict the most expensive classes of drugs will continue to be inflammatory diseases, diabetes, oncology, MS, and HIV. And with regard to gene therapy and CAR-T therapy pricing models, outcomes reimbursement, as Nitin said, will be a main focal point of many payers. Now we move on to precision healthcare, and there's no greater example of precision healthcare than with immuno-oncology. There are increasing numbers of companies focusing on targeted molecules in the immuno-oncology space. The sequencing of the genome has led to the advancement of cancer treatment as personalized therapies are becoming mainstream. And as a matter of fact, many insurance companies now require the use of companion diagnostics prior to a patient ever receiving a, a targeted therapeutic. This is just to make sure that the patient has the right cell markers to increase the likelihood of that very therapy working. And the use of these predictive biomarker tests is increasing across all tumor types, with the highest use being in ER and PR, breast cancers, and BRAF mutations for melanoma, 17P mutations for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Next generation immunotherapies are also in development for over other 60 other mechanisms of action. The current goal in all areas of immuno-oncology is to increase response rates. This is already being done with checkpoint inhibitors and combination therapies of checkpoint inhibitors, as well as the CAR-T therapy. But CAR-T therapies so far have only been successful in B-cell malignancies because these B-cells have cell surface markers. Finding antigens that can be targeted on solid tumors with specific specificity has not been successful, but many current clinical trials are underway. Now looking at digital therapeutics. Digital health tools have a vast potential to improve the ability to accurately diagnose and treat diseases. They're enhancing the delivery of healthcare in the U.S. for each individual, making medical care truly patient-centric. These, to these tools are empowering patients, but in addition, providing their care providers with real-time therapeutic insights, as well as giving insurance providers more tools to effectively manage beneficiary healthcare. In December 21st of 2018, the FDA cleared the Reset Zero, a digital therapeutic for opioid use disorders. This device was developed by Pair Therapeutics and Sandoz. It provides cognitive behavioral therapy as an adjunct to outpatient treatment. This commercialization partnership between Pair and Sandoz is a positive for the digital therapeutics area, and it will improve the ability of doctors to monitor patient data evaluate patients' behavior day-to-day, -day, improve treatment access, and improve abstinence while reducing dropout rates. Reimbursement coverage in this area will be very important for therapeutics to gain traction. PAIR has a reimbursement code already issued for RESET as in a, and is in a continued ongoing discussions with many payers. 
So given the novelty of this space, we think that pricing will be an important consideration for this and other digital therapeutics. Moving on now to M&A. We see, along with the majority of other life science investors and analysts, there's an increase in, of investment going on in this area. Right now, many pharma companies are closely examining their portfolios. Increasingly, we're seeing a growing desire of these companies to narrow their therapeutic areas of focus, largely in an effort to control spending. And when this is going on, they spin off non-core assets. Why is this happening? Many of these companies have had blockbuster drugs which have lost exclusivity and have come off patent. There are now generic products available which are seriously in eroding previous revenue streams. We believe that cell and gene therapy is poised to have the biggest breakthrough in 2019 among the major therapeutic areas when it comes to M&A. And a very good example of this is the BMS $74 billion acquisition of cell gene on January 3rd of 2019. And moving on now to the Farm Bill. 2019 is positioned to be a banner year for the cannabis market. On December 20th of 2018, President Trump signed into law the Agricultural Improvement Act of 2018, more commonly known as the Farm Bill. With the passage of the Farm Bill, hemp cultivation is broadly permitted. This Farm Bill explicitly allows the transfer of hemp-derived products across state lines for commercial or other purposes. Under this law, hemp can contain no more than 0.3% of THC. Interestingly, the Farm Bill regulations will be overseen by the Department of Agriculture at the state level, not the Federal Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA. And as a result of this, hemp and hemp-derived CBD products will become more accepted with consumer demands expected to grow. Also, the Farm Bill established that hemp containing less than 0.3% THC is no longer categorized as a Schedule I drug under the Controlled Substance Act. In 2019, the FDA may or may not change its position regarding hemp. That remains to be determined. Also, the passage of the Farm Bill might even facilitate the banking industry to be more open to businesses with compliance and help them get moving with their money something that has not been um, possible with the um, other Schedule One categorization of these products. But regardless of what the FDA or Treasury Departments do, the recently passed Farm Bill guarantees that 2019 will be a banner year for the cannabis industry in the U.S. And now I will pass the um, floor to Fred, who will be discussing the China possibilities. Thanks. And I'm Fred uh, from FS China. So I will introduce the China life, life science industry. Uh, China life science industry is a fast-growing industry in the China or of the industries. So I will tell you from the five points. First one is significant unmet and medical needs. I can give you an example of the cancer disease. The cancer is one of the leading, leading cases in China. In 2017, the total new cancer cases has reached 4.2 billion, and the growth rate is very, very high. And the cancer cases and the disability has um, has proven lots of uh, disease costs to China government. And uh, the China government also uh, released several 
policies to promote the, the expansion of national medical insurance list and lots of high value and high priced anti-cancer drugs has list into the national medical insurance list for the China for China cancer patients and and the approval process for the high-priced drug from MNC companies has accelerated. So in the low days, the China cancer patients can get the high-value and high-priced China uh, high-priced anti-cancer drugs very, very fast. And this said, uh, the uh, China pharmaceutical companies, especially for the new startups, focusing on the research and development activities in the anti-cancer drug market, and uh, they have lots of new new pipelines in this industry, and the uh, China investors want to put lots of uh, investment on this field because they can see the high ROI from this industry. And uh, the last one, uh, driven by the huge patient combination and the expansion of basic medical insurance system and the uh, investment from the uh, VC market. So the China and the cancer market will grow very quickly in future. In 2017, the China and the cancer drug market is a market of USD. 21.4 billion USD dollars, accounting for roughly 10% of the total China pharmaceutical market. But the data will go to USD 100 billion USD in 2013, and the percent were 20% of the total market. So the anti-cancer drug market is just one of the fast-growing markets in China. So there are also other therapeutic areas like the uh, cardiovascular and uh, uh, anti-infective drug market is also uh, fast-growing in China market. And the second one, I want to talk about the no penetration of bionautics. Um, in our world, the uh, China bionautics market is a very small segment in China total pharmaceutical market, but with the fast-growing speed. Um, in addition, among the top ten, the top ten drugs in China by sales revenue, there are only two bionautics in China in 2017, and these two drugs are the insulin from MNC companies. So the China government want to promote the development of China bionics market development. So they released lots of favorable policies to promote the development of the market. So we believe the market will vastly grow straight in future and faster than that of the chemical drug segment and the traditional child medicine segment. Uh, now let's move into the public sector reform. In the recent years, uh, exactly from the 2000 to uh, uh, 2010, 
the Chinese government released lots of um, policies to promote the uh, total life sense market development from the accelerated the review, such as um, the review speed for the MNC and the local innovative companies, and the uh, expansion of national reinvestment drug list, and the participation of ICH. All of these policies can accelerate the development of China license license industry. Now let's uh, look at the world's largest privately backed AI startups. The China government wants to promote the development of new technology. So AI is one of the is one of the latest one is one of the latest advanced technology. The central government and the local government like local government like Shanghai has released lots of policy to promote the development of this kind of the AI technology because uh, the government and the investors can see lots of benefit from from the uh, from development of AI technology like um, promoting the development of new drug research and development and also can uh, decrease the cost of uh, medical treatment from the hospital. So the government and, and the investors want to promote the development of AI technology. Now let's look at the last one, improved access to the capital. Into, uh, in 2018, the Hong Kong Exchange released the new policy. The policy, the policy was to the pre-revenue and the pre-profit, China and uh, China, China uh, local and MNC startup companies to list into the Hong Kong Hong Kong stock market, but they should have some basic requirements before the listing, such as their pipeline should enter into the phase two stage. Lots of China biotech companies has initiated their IPO process in 2018, and lots of their pipelines focused on the uh, oncology and autoimmune disease, and lots of the uh, the uh, and and there are about uh, five companies has successfully listed in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So uh, we believe uh, in the two, so we believe in 2019, there are also lots lot of China better companies will list in the Hong Kong, Hong, Hong Kong Exchange stock market. So, so this is a new trend. In a word, this is very hardly to, uh, to uh, give a um, word to summarize the China life sense industry. So I think we can provide some key word about the industry, the uh, complicated, fast growing, and um, we can see from the, uh, the futures in this industry. So this is the uh, summary of China life sense industry. Uh, I will 
we will move on to the uh, UK market. Sure. Uh, thanks, Fred. Uh, the UK healthcare and life sciences sector will remain a key influencer during the Brexit negotiations and during the post-Brexit phase. The Brexit pitch uh, has already begun, but we are still yet to leave the EU. A hard or no-deal Brexit has the potential to disrupt the status quo negatively and positively, and we shall uh, explore both. Firstly, in regards to the drug supply contingency, uh, the government has told drug companies to stockpile at least six weeks' worth of medicine in case of a no-deal Brexit, and most drug companies and consumable stockpiles have already been uh, created. Then we'll also see a shift in the headquarters of the European Me Medicines Agency, which would move to Amsterdam after Brexit, and this could impact market approval. Medicines on the UK market that have a UK marketing authorization will not be affected by Brexit. However, the new medicines that come to the market via licensing route overseen by the EMA, known as the centrally authorized products, will automatically be converted into UK MAs on the 29th of March 2019. However, the EU, they have not decided to exclude Britain from the EU's uh, drug approval system from March 30, 2019. So this could impact quicker access to innovative new diagnostic tools, treatments, and medical technologies under the UK Accelerated Access uh, Review. Uh, next, we've got the manufacturing <laughs> and services. We've got the manufacturing and services uh, reconsideration. So apart from the brain drain, there will be a significant manufacturing and services reconsideration since more than 2,600 drugs have some stage of manufacture uh, in Britain. A hard Brexit or no deal could negatively impact the entire supply chain uh, of these uh, pharmaceuticals. In terms of pharmaceutical relief, uh, what we have seen is that diagnostic devices, packaging supplies, semi-finished products, and even some active pharmaceutical ingredients may be subject to duty payments. This would sort of result in increased cost of goods sold, impacting the profitability, as well as placing additional cash flow requirements on the supply chain. Should the UK fall under the WTO pharmaceutical agreement, assuming that the UK adopts this, there should be no duty payable on finished pharmaceutical products. I do want to point out that the World Trade Organization's uh, pharmaceutical tariff elimination agreement means that relying on WTO rules in the event of a no-deal scenario uh, would not have as significant impact on the pharmaceutical sector as for other sectors that the committee has considered. However, there are still significant concerns that it could injure the UK's position as a manufacturing base, a global supply hub, and as a manufacturer and recipient of new and innovative medicines. The government should pursue a trade agreement with the EU and with other trading partners that includes all finished and component pharmaceutical products and is not just limited to those currently listed under the WTO rules. An extended delay in adding new pharmaceutical products and ingredients, uh, for example, for the, to the WTO listing could sort of have a significant impact. In addition to this, the Brexit um, has the potential to also improve the UK life sciences uh, sector. A hard or uh, EU-Canada comprehensive economic and trade agreement style Brexit may also have a imp positive impact on life sciences uh, financing. Uh, for example, in terms of increased R&D funding, 
the EU funding contributes to approximately 15% of total UK research, whereas the UK contributes less than 7% of total EU research. The UK life sciences sector deal brings together the government with universities, charities, and more than 25 businesses, large and small, which will boost UK spending on total R&D to about 2.4% of GDP by 2027. The UK would become an attractive destination for high-quality talent investment and funding grants, uh, for example. Lastly, in terms of retention of uh, investment, uh, based on a survey that was done in 2018, we saw that 38% of investor respondents uh, in the investor perception survey reported that Brexit would not currently uh, have an impact on the investment strategy and nor did they expect it to in the future. For example, MSD said it will open a state-of-the-art life sciences discovery research facility in London by 2020, focusing on the early bioscience discovery and entrepreneurial uh, innovation. In addition to this, for example, in terms of IP protection from uh, parallel Im importers, third parties are free to buy up branded medicines in an EU member state where the price is typically low and gain significant profit by selling in a more expensive EU member state by undercutting pharmaceutical companies' prices. If Brexit results in the UK leaving the single market, pharmaceutical companies uh, may be able to stop importation into the UK by asserting their intellectual property rights, typically patents or trademarks against parallel importers. Having said that, I'll turn it back over to Nitin for the fireside chat. Thanks, Unmesh. Um, so uh, let's... Um uh, move over to our fireside chat. Uh, Barbara, I would like to invite you and uh, let's begin with some of the recent developments in the U.S. market. Um, oncology continues to be a focus area, um, you know, and, and um, cancer remains the number two killer. So, so really the question for you is, what are the challenges to development and commercialization of immuno-oncology therapies? Thank you, Nitin. <clears throat> One of the main key challenges for the broad implementation of cancer therapies in the immuno-oncology area remains the controlled modulation of the immune system. These therapeutics typically have very adverse side effects, including autoimmunity and nonspecific inflammation. So understanding how to increase the response rate to the various classes of immunotherapies will be key to improving the efficacy and controlling these adverse events. And most importantly, these therapies are very, very expensive, so outcomes measurements um, will be depend will certainly direct how reimbursement is handled, and payers are really concerned about this. So, it's a it's a mixture of things, but um, certainly response response rates and um, side effects and um, modulating the immune system will be some of the challenges. Awesome. Yeah, uh, so, you know, this is, you know, pretty interesting because we do see, you know, um, companies uh, pretty aggressively building positions. Uh, you talked about the deal with BMS and Celgene, um, and and although we know, you know, it's a, it's a pretty risky deal uh, given that, you know, there is early stage pipeline um, and uh, there is uh, very little uh, fact about how companies can actually leverage these kind of operational synergies. Uh, let's move on to, you know, let's switch gears and, and move to uh, a very interesting space, which is the medical marijuana. And we, we have seen both big uh, pharma and, uh, you know, tobacco companies actually developing 
cannabis products which is uh, estimated now to be almost a six billion dollar market the hemp market uh, as you talked about seems pretty very niche and attractive uh, but the laws and regulations governing this space is are very different from from the traditional marijuana space can you tell us a bit more about this difference in regulations and how manufacturers are exploiting it sure well after the passage of the farm bill hemp now will be overseen and managed by the department of agriculture not the drug enforcement agency and also hemp has not has been removed as a it's no longer a schedule 1 substance so these two things are very critical because now the largest um, players in the market who sell these products will be able to sell them both online and across state lines without the repercussions that were had when these things were considered Schedule One substances and um, overseen by the Department of um, the DEA. So hemp users now are more likely, traditionally hemp users, lived in states where medical marijuana was not legalized and where the regulations were really limiting what people had access to. So now with the changes of the Farm Bill and the passage of the Farm Bill, you'll see more movement of these products across the state line. And it won't be the same um, regimented regulations that will apply still to cannabis-based products produced from non-hemp. Yeah, thanks, Barbara. Uh, interesting perspective, and I think uh, yeah, this is also a pretty hot space. So you know, we do expect uh, a lot of companies investing, and actually also you know some sort of acquisitions going in this space. Uh, let's move yeah. focus now to China. Uh, uh, we heard uh, from Fred earlier how the reforms in the overall healthcare industry and specifically cancer care are creating new opportunities. Uh, Fred, um, you know, uh, you, you've seen especially from some of the research coming from your team that uh, the wave of patent expirations in the next five years uh, will create a huge opportunity for biosimilars. Can you tell us a bit more about, you know, who are the local Chinese companies and how are they uh, actually at the forefront to capture this opportunity in biosimilars? Okay, thanks, Nitin. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, the biosimilar market um, has grown the fast growth rate in China in recent years, especially from the uh, 2015, because the China government released um, the detailed uh, clinical trial guideline for biosimilar in China. Um, but as of now, there is, there is low biosimilar has proved in China market. Uh, if we want to segment the market players in the China biosimilar market, we can see there are, there are two segments. The first segment is the CMO or CDMO market players, like the Wuxi Biologics and GHL Biotech in Taiwan. These market players never uh, do in-house research and uh, development uh, similar activities. They just uh, provide the outsourcing services, outsourcing services to the biosimilar market players like Wuxi uh, Biologics. They provide the CDMO and CMO services to the uh, market players in global biosimilar market. 
especially for the China emerging biosimilar market players. Uh, the, uh, the second, uh, uh, the, the second, uh, the second market, the second market, the second tier market players are the uh, China traditional uh, biologics uh, market player like the Henry Pharmaceutical and uh, uh, 3S Bio. They are the traditional uh, biologics uh, market players in China market, but uh, uh, they wanted to enter into the biosimilar segment in recent years. They have built a lot of uh, biologics manufacturing and um, recruit a lot of talent from the uh, MNC companies. So they have a great ambition wanting to enter into the biosimilar market. The rest of the uh, new startups, like the Hainers, about a company, and the Innovent Biologics, they are the new market player in China biosimilar market. And their pipeline maybe in phase two and uh, uh, phase three stage. But uh, their talent from the MNC company or from the leading local China company can accelerate the development of their pipeline. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Fred. And I think, uh, you know, I had a question to you on the capital access, but you did cover uh, some of that discussions before. So, so let's move on. Um, so, Unmesh, I'm going to now hand over to you. Uh, you have some interesting uh, points on the predictions, so uh, uh, please go over and, and, and share your interesting findings. Over to you, Unmesh. Thanks, Nathan. Uh, so, as part of the pharmaceuticals, biotech, and diagnostic research tools, uh, verticals of life sciences, uh, we closely track a wide array of therapeutic areas and emerging technologies. Over the next few minutes, Kushpu and I shall talk about some of these key disruptive technologies, emerging business models, and game-changing companies aligned to the growth opportunities in uh, 2019. During 2019, clinical trials IT solutions market for patient recruitment and monitoring is expected to grow by over 28% to reach uh, 450 USD a million mark, driven primarily by mHealth wearables and smartphone uh, solutions. The focus is going to be on bringing trials to the patients. What we have seen is that digitization is providing an impetus to move away from the centralized, which are very high cost and difficult to access settings, uh, to more virtual models, which are more patient-centric and efficient. We are seeing emerging bring-your-own-device concepts, which are helping clinical trial sponsors, CROs, uh, to reduce hardware and in infrastructure costs for monitoring patients and also assisting in increasing compliance uh, for trial protocols. This convergence of mHealth variables and gamification concepts is what will help to increase patient engagement and overall usability and effectiveness of these remote virtual monitoring uh, solutions. We are predicting the remote and virtual clinical trial solution market will grow at a CAGR of between 20 to 25% over the next five years. An early application and integration of mHealth will offer persuasive benefits around reducing trial costs, streamlining trial processes, and demonstrating real-world efficacy. 
for example, Verco, a phase four uh, clinical trial uh, that was taking place, has shown significant uh, benefits uh, in regards to these uh, virtual clinical uh, trials. Uh, how would this sort of impact some of the stakeholders uh, that we are seeing in this particular space? For example, the clinical trial sponsors, the CROs, and the regulators will play a central role in validating new digital endpoints with their ongoing research work and act as a central point to facilitate collaboration between wearable device OEMs, data aggregators, and mHealth platform providers, thus emerging as the largest force behind the scalability of these mHealth solutions. Uh, with the advent of these remote monitoring technologies, vendors such as site management organizations and patient recruitment organizations are using these traditional business models that witness maximum disruption and businesses will tend to leverage these technologies aligned with a digital theme like data monetization. The increasing volume and veracity of this data for, from mHealth solutions will compel the traditional clinical IT system providers such as the EDC, the CTMS, RTSM to sort of leverage these converging technologies and shift from static to adaptive data management practices. mHealth solution providers will also work towards developing interoperable systems which can sort of standardize data as mandated by regulatory bodies uh, like the FDA for heightened use in drug protocols. As I was mentioning uh, initially, the clinical trials conducted for diabetes uh, by Verco, sort of using these remote clinical trial platform, integrated with 3G-enabled wireless blood glucose meters, spent 66% less time in study coordination activities, and achieved 18% higher compliance. We've also identified that mHealth-enabled remote trials at lower-cost facilities and in-home settings can reduce per-trial cost by 15 to 22%. Therefore, the successful de uh, deployment of uh, these virtual clinical trials can reduce total tri trial time by up to 30% or as much as two years, uh, which is phenomenal. Uh, the potential cost savings uh, in mHealth-enabled remote uh, trials will be the highest across therapeutic areas like, this, like CNS, related pain and anesthesia trials, with the potential of saving about 10 million USD per study, followed by hematology, uh, with achievable savings of about up to 20%. We are also tracking some of the game-changing companies in this space, the likes of Science37, uh, that have had their virtual trials uh, in terms of the um, microbiome acne treatment, and they have significant uh, partnerships and backed by major pharma sponsors, the likes of Sanofi, Google, Novartis, Otsuko, and Amgen, to mention a few. Uh, we also are tracking companies uh, like Markin, who are providing shipment solutions for time and temperature sensitive materials for these clinical trials and are providing an extensive home-based virtual network uh, of nurses uh, to achieve that. Then companies like Medidata that are providing a one-stop shop e-clinical technology uh, solution that offers a cloud-based platform for data capture, machine learning, providing these predictive analytics and uh, risk-based monitoring and workflow tracking of these clinical uh, trials. Other companies in this space are the likes of Evidation Health, uh, Thread Research, ClinPal, uh, PRA Health, and Sage BioNetworks. Therefore, Frost and Sullivan predicts that 2019 will be the year when remote research studies uh, will become a new vertical within the life sciences uh, industry. 
Um, moving on to the next uh, prediction, uh, we are predicting that single-use technology to enable decentralization of cell and gene therapy product manufacturing. What we are witnessing is a shift towards flexible, small-volume manufacturing comprising of these single-use systems that have bioanalytical capabilities and are also exploring continuous processing technologies in modular facilities. That's where we see the future lies. About 40% of the total growth in the pharmaceutical market is going to be attributed to oncology, cell and gene therapy, rare diseases, and neurosciences. We've already seen two multi-billion uh, dollar uh, biotechnology deals that have already been announced uh, in the new year, namely Eli Lilly, uh, which agreed uh, to buy uh, Loxo on uh, which agreed to buy Loxo Oncology for about $8 billion, and BMS uh, had the $74 billion uh, takeover of Celgene. In early 2018, we had also seen Celgene, which had bought Juno Therapeutic for a record $9 billion to boost their cancer pipeline. While these are very risky uh, deals, what we are seeing is, uh, you know, access to cell and access to Celgene and Juno's extensive pipeline uh, in CAR-T, and sort of leveraging some of their operational synergies and the premium pricing in the U.S. markets are keys for some of these uh, deal drivers. Both Novartis and Kite, I would like to mention, were some of the first companies that also launched some of these adopted T-cell therapies for the treatment of hematology, uh, hematology cancers. So we are seeing a significant interest uh, in the MNA space for these cell and gene therapies. In addition to this activity, there are over 400 cell and gene therapies in preclinical to phase three development, and about 1,700 clinical studies are underway globally, which is significantly going to increase this market, which is going to grow by about 15.25% in 2019. Now, how is this sort of going to impact the key players in this particular market? For the biopharma companies, they're going to increasingly need to decentralize and outsource manufacturing of these low volume, high complex cell and gene therapies and collaborate with CDMOs that are dedicated to supporting commercialization of these therapies, ranging from the autologous and allogenic to the ex vivo and in vivo therapies. For the CDMOs, as more and cell and gene therapies uh, transition from clinical trials to commercial markets, they will increasingly need to employ single-use technologies in its entirety or in hybrid models to sort of achieve this decentralized uh, centralization in manufacturing, which is basically bringing it closer to the patient and meeting some of the challenges uh, in the supply chain demands. Then for the single-use technology developers, we will develop scalable solutions uh, taking into account the challenges of extractable and leachable and reproducibility. For example, for cell therapies, traditional uses of single-use systems, including devices such as pipettes, blood collection uh, bags, and T-flasks uh, will expand to include collection sets, uh, fluid transfer sets, small volume cell culture systems and single use bags and assemblies for media and cryopreservation. Some notable companies are Merck, which offers single use tangential filtration capsules, final fill capsule filters and large scale mixers to improve the overall speed and use and for bioreactors along those lines as well. In regards to CDMOs, we are seeing Samsung Biologics, which is expanding its manufacturing sites and equipping them with more flexible single-use systems through collaboration with leaders like Merck Millipore. And then we are also seeing companies uh, like Gore that have a broad range of single-use consumables. 
uh, that are companies providing for frozen storage solutions for advanced cell and gene therapy products that are critical for downstream processing. So overall, though there are significant challenges which exist in regard to the commercialization of these cell and gene therapies, two of which are the lack of well-developed distribution channels and in-house logistic, logistics capabilities. Notwithstanding that, we are seeing the requirement for these commercial scale cell and gene therapy manufacturing will propel growth in the single-use technology adoption by 22% in 2019. Having said that, I'll turn it over to Kushpu, who can delve a little bit deeper into the predictions uh, for diagnostics and research tools. Great. Um, thank you, Unmesh. Uh, like Unmesh said, let's change tracks a little and uh, look at opportunities in the diagnostics industry now. So today, in addition to looking at changes in the fundamental science, we also want to discuss levers like go-to-market strategy, geographic focus, and expansion of applications, which are ultimately paving the way for technology adoption. So the very first area of opportunity that we want to highlight is direct-to-consumer genetic testing. And this is sort of aligned with the new prevention and wellness mentality that we are all collectively embracing and how we are really moving away from that very limited therapeutic focus. Now these direct-to-consumer tests have been on the market for almost three years. But there were concerns around a large number of false positives, uh, there was uncertainty around regulations, and all of this was really holding back the market growth up until now. However, thankfully the scene is changing. Regulatory bodies are warming up to these tests and larger pharma companies are taking a greater interest in the data potential of these tests. And because of all of these positive indicators, we expect the market to grow from less than a billion in 2018 to about $1.2 billion in 2019. Now that we have established that there is growth potential, we need to ask how to really harness this potential. Well, the first step would be for vendors to have an omni-channel presence, which really means that companies will have to reach to the consumer through their in-house digital platforms, they will need to work with third-party e-commerce portals, and they will have to increase their presence in retail stores. Frankly, it is this all-round engagement with the consumer which will draw distinction between successful and unsuccessful vendors in 2019. As far as segment level growth goes, I will go back to my original point of increasing efforts towards improving our total wellness. And so in line with that trend, in the near term, companies can focus on lifestyle tests such as nutrition, fitness and sports, diet plans, essentially everything that is oriented towards everyday well-being. And then in the midterm, companies can expand their focus on health risk testing uh, which could include carrier screening, microbiome testing, pharmacogenomics. And this has a dual advantage. The extended timeline is also going to give that cushion for the tests to become more accurate and become more clinically acceptable with the physicians. Now, irrespective of the application, we have to acknowledge that these kinds of tests create humongous amounts of data, which sort of leads us to our third dimension of growth, that is monetization of the genomic data. And look at partnerships between 23andMe and Merck or between um, Ancestry and Calico. They're all testament to the huge potential of all the latent data. 
and companies are using this data today to improve their drug discovery process. They're using this data in clinical trial designing and most importantly, in efficacy monitoring of the drugs. And the good thing about this multi-dimensional growth is that it is not just restricted to test developers. This also opens up avenues for other stakeholders. The very first set of stakeholders that I want to talk about is genetic counselors. Because we will need a large number of counselors to work with patients, both before and after the test, and most importantly, to provide insights into report outcomes. Now, they can either work in conjunction with test developers to offer integrated services, or they can work independently, like what the company Consulta Gene is doing. The second set of stakeholders which stand to benefit would be clinicians and healthcare professionals. Doctors can actually use this data to create a more longitudinal health profile of the patient. This will help them avoid all these high-risk prescriptions, help them avoid adverse events, and very importantly, they can actually tailor the entire treatment plan based on patient's individual lifestyle. Now, if you look at the slide, we have listed some of the active companies in this space. We have 23andMe, which has already partnered with 13 pharma companies. They are right now working on improving the whole cancer detection and other rare disease detection technology. Another company that stands out is Atlas Biomed because it is one of the very few companies which offer a comprehensive test portfolio. That includes health, sports, nutrition, microbiome, personal traits, and several other tests. And the last but not the least is Helix, which can be really thought of as um, Amazon for direct-to-consumer genetic tests. They do have their own sequencing services, but they also aggregate tests from different vendors and offer an enhanced product distribution solution, or so to speak, a more specialized marketplace. And all of these companies that I just talked about, they are more focused on North American and European markets. But it is interesting to note that there are so many regional players emerging in South Korea, in India, South Africa, UAE, and they're all great collaboration partners. Because A, they will give global companies better access to these geographies, and B, it will help all these global companies build a more region-specific genomic data, which will be a crucial differentiator for pharma companies. Okay, uh, moving on to a second opportunity, liquid biopsy. This is the newest frontier in non-invasive testing and probably one of the most promising areas of 2019. But before we take a look at 2019, I actually want to take a step back and look at the last three years. So liquid biopsy received a wholehearted welcome from the investor community. And I mean, look at companies like Gray. They have managed to raise a billion and a half dollars in such a short span of time. Or look at Garden Health which has already gone public. And come to think of it, this is a natural course of business because the overall technology market for liquid biopsy is expected to cross the $1 billion mark by 2019. And this is remarkable considering that it is still early days for liquid biopsy. Next, if we talk about use of liquid biopsy, it has already found application across a gamut of disease areas right from um, cancer diagnosis to reproductive health to infectious diseases, um, cardiovascular diseases. And as the 
test specificity and sensitivity keeps improving, these application areas will also continue to grow. However, at Frost, we believe that in 2019, oncology will still remain the key area of growth. And I know, everyone is talking about oncology, you know, using liquid biopsy for cancer detection and cancer management. But the big question for us is, which are those specific sweet spots within oncology for 2019? And we have two answers for this question. First, and a much bigger opportunity, is in the area of early cancer screening. Because when we talk about screening absolutely healthy people with no symptoms of cancer whatsoever, we open up doors to a $100 billion market. And the second answer to that question, and a more immediately realizable one for that, is offering enterprise solutions. What that really means is working with CDMOs, working with pharma companies to improve patient enrollment process for clinical trials. And the upside is not only that it will help select the right subject for targeted therapy trials, it will also accelerate the whole process of enrollment and substantially bring down the cost of trials. Now, like we just discussed, even though the applications for existing technology are expanding, there is still plenty of scope for parallel technological advancement. For starters, companies have so far largely focused on taking a single gene approach. But this year, we can expect a lot more of multi-gene and pan-cancer biomarker tests to come to market. And there are companies like Personal Genome Diagnostic or Chronics Biomedical. They're already at the forefront of driving this evolution. Now, having talked about this more uh, linear advancement from single gene to multi-gene, I next want to jump on another area of technology-led growth, that is artificial intelligence and machine learning. Because use of big data and all these artificial intelligence tools can help create that learning algorithm to add predictive value to the tests. And this is exactly what companies like Freenome and iSingulera are offering, where they're combining NGS-based data with machine learning algorithms. And we strongly believe that there's a great potential in driving investment in developing this pattern recognition system, this system that enables use of artificial intelligence in conjunction with liquid biopsy tests. And lastly, we cannot ignore the APAC markets and China in particular. Companies have thus far uh, restricted their focus mostly on highly regulated markets, but we honestly foresee a great scope in China because there's this subset of population which is willing to pay out of pocket for these tests. But what companies really need to do is they will have to customize their solutions and offer tests and services at a more rationalized price point to tap into these markets. Speaking of companies, some of the notable players in this space are Garden Health, which recently went public. Um, the company is not only using liquid biopsy tests for late-stage cancers, it is also expanding the use for cancer recurrence and early cancer detection. Then we have Freenome, and like I mentioned earlier, the company is using artificial intelligence to amplify the signature coming from the tumor. So on one end, it will improve the whole diagnostic testing, and on the other end, Freenome is working with pharma companies to improve the drug discovery process and predict treatment response to find the right interventions. And last company on the list is Grail, which is an Illumina spin-out, 
And the company really differentiates itself on two fronts. One, it is developing tests for early cancer screening, which is a step before diagnostic. And second, it is working on multi-cancer detection. So all in all, we do foresee tremendous growth in this segment on multiple fronts. On that note, I will move to our next slide. All right. Our last uh, opportunity is aligned to a more horizontal theme of femtech that is impacting devices, drugs, and diagnostics alike. And I'm referring to IPS here. Now, in vitro fertilization is a fast-growing opportunity, and more so in the APAC region. First off, there are inevitable lifestyle changes. There are late pregnancies, we are acquiring chronic diseases at an early age, and we have abundant unhealthy habits, which are all creating a greater need for IVF treatment, to the point that it will reach almost $25 billion value in 2019. And the trend we are getting to see is that APAC is increasingly becoming one of the largest contributors in this space. In fact, today it accounts for over 25% of the total market. If we dive a little deeper to see the real dynamic in APAC market, on one end, we are seeing huge organic demand in APAC, and on the other end, we are witnessing this surge in inorganic demand from reproductive tourism. And to give you an impression of the magnitude that we're talking about, look at India. There were between 10,000 and 15,000 childless couples that visited India for treatment last year. And this is just one country. There are similar growth hotspots across Thailand and Australia. But again, this growth has more enablers than just volume demand. There are companies like Progeny that provide end-to-end uh, -end guidance to couples. They structure the entire financial curriculum and they provide fertility benefits to get the couples started with the treatment. And this in a lot of ways is a business model which is very unique to IVF market. And of course, because we are talking about IVF in the era of precision medicine, we have to talk about advanced diagnostic tests to manage the complete fertility cycle. Again, there are a bunch of tests, some that did fly with regulatory approvals and some that didn't. But in our opinion, the one test that will really make its mark in 2019 is Pre-Implantation Genetic Diagnostics, or PGD. And the main goal with PGD tests is to control unpredictability during embryo transfer and to largely prevent transmission of any genetic diseases to future generations. In this domain, uh, we have companies like Genomic Prediction on our radar, which are developing uh, genotyping methods to identify risk of both single gene and multi-gene disorders simultaneously. Another tangential growth opportunity which will improve the whole assisted reproductive technology is embedding of artificial intelligence. And companies are using different aspects of deep learning to improve the treatment outcome. On one end of the spectrum, there are companies like uh, Australia-based Life Whisperer which helps the clinician identify the most viable embryo with the highest likelihood of success. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are companies like Cell Matrix, which are working directly on tracking women health and helping design more 
customized and more unique pathways to pregnancy. So for growth in IVF, everything really uh, boils down to high volume and improved outcomes of the treatment using advanced diagnostic testing and artificial intelligence. I think I will uh, conclude this entire section by saying that companies need to appreciate the interconnected nature of the ecosystem. And like Nitin said earlier, they have to embrace that digital first mentality, prioritize digital solutions, and lastly become more assertive in making inroads into APAC markets. And with this, I will uh, hand it back to you, Nitin. Thank you, Kushbu. So, uh, just to conclude this session, um, you know, a few thoughts here. Uh, essentially, we see 2019 um, as where all efforts uh, towards the amplification uh, of the precision healthcare uh, journey, be it in terms of either collaboration, uh, decentralization, or actually creating a lot of personalization of products and services. And 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 there are three sort of, uh, uh, I would say really uh, strong points which will drive this momentum. Uh, number one, really uh, reinvigorating the company's product pipeline is really a crucial task for all the CEOs. Uh, market diversification is also important because sales are really drawing, uh, dropping down across some of the blockbuster franchises. So. So partnerships with outsourcing companies, especially CDMOs uh, or CMOs is going to be a key linchpin uh, for these companies to move into the paradigm of value-based care and also demonstrate strong margins to the stakeholders. Secondly, growth in emerging markets and Asia-Pacific. Uh, as we have seen, implementation of reforms, uh, both in regulatory as well as pricing have pushed the companies to look at Asia Pacific and China. And, and this is not just the story about volume growth, but also growth coming in from introduction of cutting edge technologies. Uh, companies like Thermo Fisher, for example, have had an excellent growth momentum. Um, and, and to that, they have sort of demonstrated by putting in a lot of financial investment, like they opened their first uh, bioprocess design center for development of uh, uh, specialty products in China. So we can make we can expect similar announcements for launch of innovative therapies or also uh, diagnostic uh, products such as digital PCR technologies in this market. And finally, as uh, the precision healthcare gets into the fast lane, uh, the clear differentiation lies in the integrated approach, which is solutions like multiomics. So companies who are not just approaching or embracing digitization. Uh, with uh, inorganic growth, but also collaborating with some of the big tech companies to monetize this data uh, will be successful. So with that, we sort of conclude um, the session for today. Thank you for uh, joining us uh, and hope you have uh, enjoyed this session. So I'll turn this over back to Anna. Thank you, Nitin. Uh, yes, this concludes our session. If there's any uh, questions, uh, please do contact us. And uh, we thank you for your time. Thank you. For your time. Thank you. For your time. Thank you. For your time. 